One of the things that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is the fact that we don't have a trade deficit. And I think most of our listeners just gasped and looked at the radio or their headset if they could turn their eyes in that direction. Once more under the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. We are here to talk to you about the world of finance. We are bald. We have beards. I think I've mentioned all the important parts. You forgot economics. Oh, oh yeah. Finance and economics, that, that stuff too. But the bald and the beard part, I got that one. You did. You did. But there's a difference between us. There is. Uh, older Baldy, Jeff, has a, a white beard. Uh, younger Baldy, Jake, has a salt and pepper beard. So uh, You're not really salt and pepper. You're mostly dark. A little bit of, little bit of gray sprinkled through it. Pe- pepper yeah. and salt. Pepper and salt, yeah, something like that. Dark. dark beard. Uh, and that's how you can tell us apart on the air. Should be easy. Easily. Uh, we probably ought to do some disclosures and disclaimers. Let's do it. Um, this is the personal wealth coach. Well, I just disclosed the name of the radio program. Um, it is also the name of an sec registered investment advisory firm. Just because it's registered with the FCC doesn't mean that they have approved anything or in fact, they don't do that. The government doesn't approve stuff. They, unless they're talking about like a dam or a bridge, um, and one of those words might get said to us if we ask them to approve us, um, dam or a bridge, one of those two might get said right. to us. Uh, so they don't approve us in any way, shape or form. We do register with them on the fiduciary side and there are regulators for what we say on this radio program too. So if we're saying something that is dangerous I, to the public, they're untoward. the ones to talk to untoward. Yes. That could be our word for the day. Untoward. Which is like backward, right? Right. Not toward, so it must be backward. Inappropriate or inaccurate. Yeah. Also, we're not offering fiduciary investment advice on the air. This is educational. Fiduciary investment advice means we'd actually have to know every one of you and be talking to you one-on-one or in your household or ours. Very privately and confidentially. Yes. Uh, So this is educational content. We're hoping to give you stuff that you can make good decisions with, or at least teach some of the fundamental natures of the economy and investment that you can use to influence your decisions. That's the key word there, stuff. Stuff. But the stuff that we do relate to you in educational format, which is what we're doing here, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. You like that? Yeah, every time you say it. And I can tell you like it, which makes me like it more. Well, it goes with untoward. Untoward, yes. And a lot of legalese that basically says, we think the places we're gathering our information is correct, but who knows these days. And those that are listening on the podcasts are listening completely. This is originally a radio program on the AM spectrum. And I know some cars don't even have that anymore. Kind of weird. It is weird. I remember when Evan first came out and you couldn't get it because you'd drive behind a building and go away. 
Wow. Now it's the other way around. Uh, you don't get FM or AM when you drive around. You've got your, you're going over the cell phone network. <laughs> it's still radio, just a it's little weird. different. Uh, I think we got all of the disclosures, but we haven't talked at all about what's happened in the market this week. Oh, did something happen in the market this week? Mm, yes, it began on uh, Monday and ended on a Friday, and it, it was open and closed on each of those days. Well, let's see. The S&P 500 stock index, which is the one that we follow because it's a far more broad index than that of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is more popular uh, for some reason. I don't know why. But it continued its relentless march towards the sky. Climbed 1.57% to 3974.54, which means it's getting very close to 4,000. It's now up 5.82% so far this year, which compared with what it did, Coming off the bottom last year is pretty minor, but it's still quite an impressive rise. We were about a, we're a little over a quarter, let's see, January, February, March. We're almost a quarter of the way through the year. And if it just kept rising at the same rate, it'd be like a 24% rise this year, which I don't know if it's going to do, but it's one of those weird times when things like that happen. It's 78% higher than it was about a year ago when it hit bottom. Yeah, so that that's a big warning. If you look at your statements or if you hear advertise year-over-year year return, 78%, just know that it's weird right now that that's normal. Don't jump on that because it sounds great. Check that you didn't do the same return yourself. The same return yourself? Yeah, most people got that return if they were just in the market, if they didn't get out of the market at the bottom. Yeah, a lot of the very, very high returns we've seen, by the way, are very deceptive when they're reported in the news media. Anyway, uh, what they say is a 457% return on GameStop. What was the GameStop? What was the highest return? It got up to $350 a share, and it was roughly a year and a half after it was sitting at $4 a share. It's a pretty good return. Yeah, so you're talking thousands of percents, and people go, oh, I want that. And then they're the ones that experienced the thousands of percent reversal which is dropping to like 99 percent value and then jumping back up and get ready for a rough ride there that's all i'm saying well it was very notable that even though the s p 500 and for that matter the dow climbed during the week the nasdaq composite lost 0.6 percent for the week and why is that because the market is doing a reversal it's been doing it most of this year and it's it's kind of a it's kind of a weird thing. As soon as 2021 came around, the market began to behave differently as if there was something special about the calendar. Well, they did change calendars, probably, that are hanging on the walls in a lot of places, and people still use those. True, anyway, true. the other end of the S&P 500, you got one end of the S&P 500 that's tech and generally large company growth, and then at the other end of the other corner of the S&P 500 is mid-cap value. It rose about the same amount. It rose about 52 no, not five point. It rose about 0.56%. But the interesting thing is it's up 14%, 14.41% year to date, uh, which is a reversal in the market. The market is rotating out of the high growth speculative stocks into the more uh, grounded value stocks. And there's a lot of theories as to why that's happening, but it's a good thing. It means that the foundation is being filled in and built up in the market, which reduces the historic probability for a market collapse with a hypothetical historic probability. Right. Something like that. Right. 
Uh, it make, it means kind of like the barometer. If, if you're in hurricane season, you notice the barometer is dropping like mad and the weather's starting to cloud up. There might be, be a storm coming. On the other hand, if the weather's starting to cloud up and the barometer starts rising, the chances that there's a hurricane coming drop off pretty, pretty dramatically. And that's what's going on in the market. We have the hurt. We have the barometer rising a little bit. Um, let's see what else is going on. The yield on the 10 year U.S. Treasury note actually fell to 1.681% for the week, which is, believe it or not, sort of a good thing. It had gotten beyond itself a bit. Uh, and the reason it gotten, at least the reported reason, in the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times and places like that, that it gotten so high, went up above one, well, actually touched 1.75%. Uh, the reason it gotten so high is people were very much afraid of inflation. Well, then the Treasury, not the Commerce Department released, uh, Commerce and Labor released different, and the Fed released different uh, uh, yeah, inflation reports. Wait a minute. You, there's a tangle somewhere in that tongue. You, do you need an iron to kind of get the wrinkles? Probably do. But the the PCE, which is the one that we follow, well, I follow more co- closely because that's the one the Federal Reserve thinks is most accurate. And that's where it's the personal consumption index. Uh, personal consumption, no, personal. Consumer expenditure. Yeah, personal yeah. consumer consumer expenditures, which is probably more realistic than counting your houses. The rental value of your house, even if you're not renting it, is part of inflation. Anyway, it was only up 1.4% year over year. So inflation is not really a problem unless you consider 1.4% inflation a problem for some reason. Yeah, and it, the, there, there's, I'm just, just to jump in there, because a lot of people go, what do you mean no inflation? Do you see what's going on at the gas station? Uh, when he says the core consumption, personal consumption expenditure, they're looking at the stuff that's most volatile and pulling it out. Yes, gasoline prices are up. There are other prices, some in the food uh, prices. Some of the food prices are extremely down and others are way up. The average is is a little bit um, misleading, but it's the thing that we look at on the large, large scale. So the overall averaged out netted of all that stuff is 1.4% up from a year ago, which is not terrifying. There you go with stuff again. Stuff. The issue is to look for what's called endemic inflation or intrinsic inflation or fundamental inflation going on in the economy. And there just doesn't seem to be much of any of it. There are, even the Fed is agreeing that we may get to 2.5% inflation this year, but it'll be temporary uh, due to the surge as people come out of the pandemic, presuming we come out of the pandemic. Yeah. It's kind of speculation at this point. Well, we're already starting to see business activity really picking up like we are coming out. Whether or not that's permanent, we don't know. We can look at the economic activity, and there's a lot of ways of looking at it, uh, a lot of different measures you can use. One of the ones we do use is the price of oil. The reason is, despite all the noise to the contrary, the supply of oil is a pretty much a constant at this point. It changes a little bit from month to month, but not a great deal because it takes quite a while to drill an oil well and start pumping and find places to put it in pipelines and get it get it to its ports and refineries. So the, the supply is pretty much restricted on oil. It changes slowly over time. Makes big headlines when it does, but it changes slowly. So when the price of oil is higher than it was at the beginning of the year, that indicates that the futures contracts are higher which indicates that there's more demand seen coming down the road by the people who've got skin in the game. And yeah, price of oil is up 26% year to date. And it's up 178% from one year ago, which puts it up there with some of the stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, pretty clearly, because 
just under a year ago was when it tanked out at the at the negative level. Uh, when it was what was a negative thirty dollars a barrel something. Yeah, negative thirty-seven. Negative thirty-seven dollars a barrel, and when we I've I've mentioned that several times recently to people, and they looked at me like, "What are you talking about?" It was big news at the time. Nobody was buying oil because nobody was driving, nobody was flying, the trains were stopped, the ships were stopped, nothing was moving on the planet, and people were still pumping oil, and we don't have enough space to store it all. So people were having to pay people to take the oil off their hands because it's really that liquid stuff. I know a lot of the stuff that people trade and we track the prices of and so on are, are, are virtual, like ownership stocks that are electronically stored of, for a, a company. Or, or even when you're buying and selling gold, a lot of time it's just paper that's being delivered saying, hey, it's sitting over in that vault over there somewhere, or electronics that are being delivered. Oil actually has to show up somewhere when you buy it. And if it doesn't, the person that sold it to you is going to say, you're going to have to start paying me to hold on to this. I don't have room. So we hit negative $37 a barrel. So we should see that overall return on the, <laughs> on the year over year for oil in the near future go significantly into the stratosphere. It's, it's all part of where we were last year. Interesting little tidbit or factoid, I guess, is that this bear market that we went through last year was the steepest one that we've gone through in the, since at least post-World War II, is also one of the shortest, and the recovery has been the most rapid. It's kind of a very weird situation we're in financially and economically in the United States, something we have not been through in our lifetimes. And between the two of us, we have a long lifetime. Yeah, yeah. And even when we look back longer than that, um, the circumstances were quite different in the Great Depression and in the... Uh, it, in the, the way we knew information and how quickly we gathered it and how quickly we could respond to new information means this time around, it didn't take weeks or months for people to know that there was something up. We knew right away and, and then reacted. Another point in the markets that we watch pretty carefully is the yield curve. And a year ago, the yield curve was pretty much inverted. It was running, uh, particularly in the fall, of 2019 it was saying an inverted yield curve is a forecast and it's a fairly accurate forecast it doesn't say when or how bad that there's a recession coming we have a very steep yield curve which is the opposite of that which again again the the collective wisdom of all the people who buy and sell bonds are that the economy is going to do really really well over the next couple of years it, it's a pretty good collective wisdom too because it's really hard to do worse than what we did in the in the the depths of the shutdown really easy to see improvement. <laughs> doesn't take a stretch. Um, so is that it for the, the market, the yes, economy? The market. The market. Um, we have a couple of questions already. Uh, well, one at least. John, thanks for, for sending it in. And his is a very specific question, and it may confuse the audience if we don't explain it after we ask it, which is, is there a financial benefit, either cheaper accuracy or more security, to using SOFR over LIBOR, SOFR over LIBOR? 
And I think most of our audience may not even know what we're talking about there. So would you like to begin the, the education? Well, it really boils down to the fact that in order to make a loan and be competitive, a bank needs to have a benchmark that it works from. Right. In other words, a lot of times the loan is made up and it's variable rate or it's we'll give you a loan and it'll be this many points above something or this many points. In other words, used to, at times they've used the treasury rate, which doesn't work real well because the short-term treasury rate is effectively zero at this point. Uh, so there's a used to be something called the London Interbank Lending Rate. Offer rate, yeah. And it's still there. It's not gone away. We're just switching over from it. Well, the reason that we're switching away from LIBOR the London Interbank Offering Rate, which was compiled by a bunch of bankers who checked at the end of the day and say, what are we? What are various banks charging each other to loan each other money overnight? And that was the baseline for all loans. And if you had a loan contract with a bank, you might say, well, that you have a, uh, a line of credit and said, we'll give you a loan anytime you want a loan, um, but it'll be four points over the LIBOR, whatever it was determined. But then some bank employees, traders who were who were compensated based on how much money they made on trading overnight money, decided that they would manipulate the LIBOR and they figured out how to do it. They were just calling and, each other up on their cell phones and saying, hey, let's let's make this a little different. We can make more money. Yep. And so they were able to self-deal. And that was a bit of a scandal and people went to jail over it and people were fined over it and companies were fined over it. But then, particularly in the United States, we decided to set up the SOFR. So you can explain what the SOFR is. Yeah. Um, SOFR is a, it's, it's our version of the same thing. It, it is a benchmark we're using. And anytime we start talking about uh, benchmarks, you have to kind of understand there's some benchmarks that are totally imaginary and they sit at uh, a news organization like the S&P 500 or when I, people say, what do you mean totally imaginary? Well, there's not a tradable S&P 500. There's S&P 500 tracking funds that are out there. The S&P 500 is purely organized on information. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with uh, an actual thing. The secured overnight financing rate is uh, it's repo data uh, that's calculated from the Bank of New York Mellon. Well, what is repo? Repo is when a bank loans another bank money. It's usually an overnight loan. Not always. Sometimes it gets extended, but it's usually an overnight loan. This is really nitty-gritty stuff. Why would a bank be offering another bank a loan? That doesn't make any sense. Aren't they the ones that are given the loans? Well, they have reserve requirements. They're not allowed to loan out more than a certain percentage of what they have. And this is the reason why bankers' hours exist. You know, when you go to the bank and it's closed at 3 o'clock, uh, you have to go through the drive through That's a throwback to ancient times when computers didn't exist, but still a throwback to picking up the phone and maybe having to call another bank because you've got a lot of loan officers and they're all giving loans face-to-face. There may be paper involved rather than electronics. And they're saying, all right, here's a loan. And you've got 10 of them. This is a simple situation. They may have loaned out too much money for the reserve requirement. Well, then the bank has to go and get some cash 
So they call another bank, and this is their benchmark. This is the benchmark that's put together by the Bank of New York Mellon after talking to all of the banks that it can. And a lot of times, they're the ones that the other banks are calling to get the loan. So this is an actual average of interest rates. This is, uh, this is compiled by the New York Fed, or at least published by the New York Fed. It's compiled by Bank of New York Mellon. But to give you an example, on Friday, roughly a trillion dollars was borrowed and loaned back and forth between banks in the United States. So... They're using, by the way, they're using treasuries as collateral here. So it's pretty safe. Is, I'll give you this treasury. I'll, I'll, I want to borrow some money from you. I'll give you this treasury in return and I can buy it back tomorrow or some date in the, in the next few days. That's why it's but called it, repo. You can re, yeah, repurchase. And to give you some idea how significant that interest rate is, the, the SOFR rate on 325 was 0.01%. Right. So, and it's been, 0.01% for way back as far as I can see. Right, back oh, to March 11th was dropped down there. So what? why are we talking about this? Well, because this is also the LIBOR or the SOFR will be the benchmark for the vast majority of other loans that are given to the public. If you had a variable rate loan and you said, I am going to, uh, here's an example of a, one of the more common variable rate loans is a student loan. There's another one in the, in the adjustable rate mortgages. They're called ARMS. Um, they change their interest rate. But in order to agree to this in advance, if the interest rates are going to change in five years, you need to know that there's a baseline that it's changing against. So it may be 2% on top of LIBOR or 2% on top of SOFR on that date. So that's what this is. What is the benefit of switching from LIBOR to SOFR? Why are we even talking about it? It's a big deal in the finance world. What's the benefit? Closer scrutiny on how it's managed, less ability for it to be manipulated. There's, there's never a, a manipulation-free solution. There's, there's always somebody that can find ways to manipulate, but the stronger your protections, the better. And this sort of thing, this is considered savings data, like safe, like it is supposed to be extremely safe and not manipulatable. Banks and throughout history have manipulated this stuff. And we've got other versions of that. You know, Wells Fargo had a whole series of scandals where they were manipulating their own clients' money, their own customers' money by creating accounts they didn't ask for and charging them fees they didn't know about. Uh, what happened on the LIBOR was just on a larger scale. And what we're trying to do everywhere is say, how do we, how do we flush that out of the system? It's never going to be completely gone, but the more oversight that, that we have on it, the more oversight that the regulators have on it, the better and we really do have good regulators in the United States. The LIBOR, I don't know if it's still calculated this way, but before the scandal was calculated literally by banker employees, bank employees in London, calling each other and say, what are you lending money at? Yeah. And writing it down on a pad of paper and somebody would average it together and say, here's what the London interbank offering rate is. Uh, which is obviously subject to manipulation because whoever it is that writes it down on the piece of paper and calculates it 
uh, can change it. And of course, that would that could show up in the records. But if they all kind of conspired together and say, let's raise the rate a little bit so we can make a little more money on our loans, they could do it. And they did. The way it's done today with the SOFR is all these transactions are recorded at the Federal Reserve. And because in London, the not London, the, the SOFR transactions literally occur electronically and they're reported to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve then compiles that data, sends it to the Bank of New York. Done, I think the reason they use the Bank of New York is because they didn't want to hire a bunch of people to do the calculations. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is it, it works if you have both of the Federal Reserve can't be accused of fiddling with the interest rates if it's got a counterparty. In this case, it's got the Bank of New York melon, uh, which sounds like something you'd eat. Um, the Bank of New York melon. Yeah, and yeah. They keep it at the bank there. It's it's uh, bank, it's like a toaster. When you start an account, they'll give you the melon. The Bank of New York melon sends it back to the Federal Reserve, which takes a look at it, and the New York Fed then publishes at 8 o'clock in the morning on business day. Right. So I'm not sure that there – I mean, we, we really combed down into the nitty-gritty of these things. This is This is about as interesting to most people as double-entry bookkeeping, though. To me, I'm fascinated by the structural shift and how that got started. Double-entry bookkeeping is what funded the Renaissance. So it can the results are a lot more exciting than the actual details about what we're talking about. So what this does is it gives us a more stable and more accurate, more trustworthy set of knowledge on what our loans might charge us in the future. At least if it's higher, it will be fairly higher. And that's the idea that we're getting here. So it's a big deal in a very muted way that most people will not consider a big deal. But if you have a student loan, the vast majority of student loans are adjustable rate and they're almost all going to be moving to the SOFR. So just just to be aware that the SOFR is a much more trustworthy method of doing it than the LIBOR. It was kind of strange to have a U.S. federally funded loan pegged to a London bank offer rate. Why, why yep. was it? This is, this is more interesting to me than the rest of what we're talking about here. Why was it pinned to a London rate? And because it a long time. Yeah. London used to be the center of finance. Well, it still was until Brexit. Yeah. The center of uh, banking finance in the world was the London called the city, which is the inner city of London, um, where the banks were. And a lot of the banking standards for the rest of the world came out of there. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Federal Reserve regulations are based a lot on the Bank of England. Unfortunately, or fortunately, at, after Brexit, the banking center, the center of mass of transactions actually has moved to Holland in Europe. Yeah. And, uh, and some of it's moved to New York City. So uh, it's, it's moved Manhattan up to the finance center of the world. And it's weird to think that London has been the finance center of the world for 250 years and Brexit changed that. Uh, the London interbank offer rate was considered stable and secure because it was a lot of uh, stiff upper lipped bankers, just like the dad and Mary Poppins. Um, and that's how deep in the culture it goes saying, this is safe. This is what we will do. 
it's now moved to Holland, which is which is where it was before it went to London, and to Manhattan, which is where it is probably after everywhere else. That that to me, that fundamental shift is big because the United States has been the biggest economy in the world now since World War II, since before World War II, uh, when when the British Empire kind of started falling apart or was giving gifted away. The UK stopped becoming, stopped being the dominant economic power on the globe, but the finance center stayed for another 70 years. And that's because finance and safety, especially if it's got a reputation that's, that's been there for so long, that, that reputation doesn't move. Why did it go to Holland? Well, they also have a great deal of reputation for transparency and safety. Uh, I, I actually got asked this by one of my other economist nerdly type friends this this week. Why didn't we go to why didn't it go to Switzerland? The answer is because Switzerland is notoriously non-transparent. No government wants to move their assets to Switzerland because Switzerland's the place where historically people go to evade governmental knowledge. This is the opposite of that. So I yeah. think that's kind of more important in this shift than anything else is that now Manhattan is the center of finance for the world. The other thing is Switzerland just doesn't have a big enough market or a big enough bank presence in the world. Right. It, uh, Switzerland is kind of um, caters to the very, very wealthy and the very, very secretive people. And it's kind of famous for that. But the banks, when you look at the volume of business that they do and the volume of money that passes through them, are just a fly speck on the world trading. So it would have to be, conceivably it could go to Holland, but um, it would have to be the London or New York City probably would be the center of peace because that's just where all the money flows. Right. The London Interbank offering rate was done in pounds sterling which was a little confusing if you're in the United States because you had to figure, you actually had to make an adjustment in the London interbank offering rate for the United States because of currency fluctuations between us and them. Whereas the dominant currency in the world by far, and I mean by far the dominant currency in the world is the U.S. dollar. And I want to talk about that a little bit at some point during the, today's offering. We can just lump, leap right into it. That's This is a great segue. The dollar. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't appreciate is the fact that we don't have a trade deficit. And I think most of our listeners just gasped and looked at the radio or their headset if they could turn their eyes in that direction. The reason you don't have a trade deficit is because we can't. Let me explain that. We get this idea that there's a fixed amount of money and it's something like gold. There's only so much gold in the ground and you either have the gold or you don't have the gold. And if you have a trade deficit this is back in the 19th century if you had a big trade deficit for an extended period of time where you were buying more stuff from overseas and sending gold overseas to buy the stuff and it was being imported into wherever you were and you weren't bringing any gold in you eventually ran out of gold and your country went bankrupt and that's a that was a real threat and it did occur on several occasions to france and got close to a couple of times with england but it's not real today. Gold is a manufactured, it is not a manufactured commodity. You can't create gold from lead, despite the fact that a lot of alchemists tried for many, many years. 
What you can do, though, is create dollars. And people will say, well, we'll have runaway inflation if you create a lot of dollars because there'll be too many dollars. Well, that's kind of old hat. It, back in the, the 2000 crisis to 2000, 2002 financial crisis, and again, big time in 2008 and 2009, a lot of people got on TV or a lot of very noisy people got on TV anyway and said we're going to have runaway inflation because the Fed is creating dollars, which, by the way, they can do. They, they affect, can, in effect, can manufacture dollars. It's a little more complex than that, but they, they in effect, have the ability to create money in the economy. That's their job. They also have the ability to cause money to disappear out of the economy. That's also their job. They are the, effectively the manufacturer, manufacturer, the banks manufacture money, in effect. And they are also the quality control center for the dollar. The dollar is a manufactured good in the United States. That's something that's really important to understand. We manufacture dollars. They're used as the international reserve currency far more than anything else. The euro is second place, and it's way back in second place because it could go away at any point. As a, we've said this before on the radio program, but it's important to remember. When China buys raw materials from Africa, and they buy a lot of raw materials from Africa, when they buy oil from Iran, uh, when they buy anything in China. When Russia buys and sells oil, when Iran, these are these are folks that don't like us very much. When they buy and sell oil, it's in dollars. We, and the, why do they use dollars? Well, the dollar, first off, there's enough of them out there that they don't run out of dollars to do this with. It's very important to have sufficient liquidity. But the other thing is the dollar is a very stable currency. It is the most stable currency on the planet and has been for a very long time because the Federal Reserve does intense quality control on the value of the dollar globally. So we manufacture something that's extremely high quality. We export it, generally in the form of electronics and weird digital dollars. And the world depends on the value of the dollar to be constant. Matter of fact, there, the dollar is used as the baseline currency in lots of countries or a lot of smaller countries around the world. They just use the dollar as their currency. Yeah. Why? Because there's plenty of them and it's stable. And when they go off on their own, then people will question the value of the currency and whether or not they can back it up with anything of value. We have something backing the dollar that's tremendously valuable. That is the economy of the United States. And, and that's what we're trading with people when we're importing. We're giving them dollars that were earned here from the manufacturer by creating value. So, I mean, each step along the way... Part of the quality control that the Federal Reserve puts in there is when they're looking at the inflation numbers, they want to make sure that if someone is earning more money, it's because they're more productive, not because they're not doing anything more than they were before. That's what causes inflation. You've got to have new money created kind of in line with productivity growth and maybe a little bit more money created than productivity growth, so you have just a tiny amount of inflation. And that's what you have. It, the United States dollar has been based on for, what, close to 100 years now. Uh, from the, the policy that exists today is probably 60 years old. Let me give you an example on this. If the Chinese, for example, sell us a lot more than we sell them, which they do. So we send net a lot of dollars to we export a lot of dollars to China. China exports a lot of stuff to us that we buy. We create those dollars in the United States. We, in effect, sell them to China in exchange. It's, it's, when we do an exchange, 
the reason you can't have a balance of trade exchange uh, deficit is because you have to give something to somebody to buy something. Your labor becomes dollars. When your labor becomes dollars, you have converted your work, your time, or your savings into something that can be used to buy something. You give it to the merchant, the merchant gives you stuff. But you've created those dollars by selling your time. We, we create dollars in the United States. We transfer them through consumers and companies to China, for example. China gets the dollars, and then they loan them back to the United States. They loan them back to us, which sounds kind of weird, at very low interest rates, and that makes the Chinese happy. They're able to also use those dollars to uh, buy things that they need to make their economy run, and it makes for a nice interdependent situation. It's actually a very stable situation. It has been. If the balance of trade deficit really was dangerous, we would have gone bankrupt 20 years ago. Instead, we are the wealthiest nation on the planet by far. And that's not even getting into the other weirdnesses of the balance of trade where we're actually counting as an export, for instance, raw materials owned by Ford Motor being sent to Canada or to Mexico to a Ford Motor manufacturing plant to be made into a car part and then brought back. We count as an export that raw good, which isn't very expensive, and as an import, a finished part that if you put them all together all the parts together amount to more value than the car so our import then is a final product our export was a raw good it was owned by the same american shareholders the whole path in essence it didn't leave american hands but it went across a border we count that as an export when it comes back across the border the other way it's an import. There's a problem there. Now, if it had to be converted to pesos when you sent it to Mexico, it had to be <laughs> when it came back, that'd be a mess. But the, that's the point. As long as the American dollar is the dominant currency in the world, and I don't see any end of that in sight, period, anywhere in the future. It could, it'll have, it could happen eventually, but it would take many, many, many decades for something to occur to, to make that reality. As long as we, we maintain quality control, which the Federal Reserve Act demands and the Federal Reserve's independence demands, on the dollar. And we and the dollar is the dominant reserve currency in the world, then the balance of trade really doesn't make a lot of difference. Right. And, and a lot of people put a lot of stock in it. Um, the whole concept of what we had is the trade war. One of the major reasons for it was the fact that we had a negative balance of trade for so long. It looks like we're being cheated when it's more like we're not showing the math correctly. Um, do, did you have something you want to say before commercials? I wanted to say, take a look at your household. You probably have a huge negative balance of trade. If you look at the stuff you sell, the stuff, the physical objects that you sell versus the physical objects that you buy, you probably buy a lot more than you sell, which means you should be bankrupt. I have a negative balance of trade except that I'm creating value that I'm being paid for in the process. So these, these metrics are important to look at to say how much is moving in and out of the economy. They're not important as a gaming measure to say if we're succeeding or not, uh, and that's important. We'll be back on the other side with more of The Personal Wealth Coach.
back with more of the personal wealth coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. We're going to try to educate the populace about what's going on in the world of economics and finance. Please avoid the subject of sports unless you want to hear a depth of ignorance that uh, could consume the ocean. Um, there's some, we often talk about supply chain issues. And this is a big week for supply chain issues. Uh, there has, the Suez Canal has been blocked. Uh, I'm not sure if you were wanting to jump into this subject now, but uh, this I think it's a good time for it. Uh, supply chain issues are everywhere right now. As we've had the, the stop start, we've talked about this during the pandemic, that you really want to ramp up slowly coming back into business. If you shut down and then start back up and then shut down and then start back up, things break. Physical things a lot of times break. Uh, it's the thing that hurts your light bulbs the most. It's the thing that hurts your car the most. The startup shutdown, startup shutdown. It's the same in the economy. And the supply chain has had some severe yanks. That chain has had cha links break in lots of different places. And I think really what we need is a supply net rather than a supply chain that we need to have a lot of sources for the same products, and that leads to less efficient transactions, more expensive uh, purchases. What happened in, in the Suez Canal, and by the way, that is where 80% of the shipping traffic from Asia uh, to Europe. And it's got to pass through the Straits of Hormuz and up into the Suez Canal that's covered by the Egyptians. No. What's that? Not Strait of Hormuz. That's in, that goes in and out of the... I'm sorry. Yeah, that's other side. Sorry. You're right. Absolutely. Um, so th this, this is a massive amount of shipping that's going through a, a relatively narrow canal. By relatively narrow, it's being blocked right now by one ship. Now, it's Admittedly, it is a very large ship, but it is blocking tr shipping, and there are estimates out there, which there's really no way of getting an accurate estimate. But man, these estimates sound good, that it's costing shippers $200 million an hour, and um, it's kind of like saying that that asteroid going by is roughly the shape of Connecticut or roughly the size of Connecticut. Well, it, it's not. It, these, these comparisons aren't very good. It is expensive. It is extremely expensive. It's spread out across a lot of different industries. China ships to Europe just like it ships to the United States. It's less to Europe. Europe's already tipped over into recession again. And one of their main trade arteries just got shut off. And I, I have trouble even describing the amount of, of damage this may be causing to Europe. This is like another shutdown for them in a lot of areas. It's just a completely different one. It's important to understand the reason for that. You know, it, I just read this morning that it, 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 it 
the ships go around the Cape of Good Hope around the south end of Africa. It adds seven days to the journey from Southeast Asia, for example, to Europe. Well, seven days is not a huge delay. You think that's it's going to halfway around the world. It's transitioning through two continents. Seven days extra travel time is no big thing. Well, it is when the when you've got a choreographed dance going on. The ships arrive at the port of Rotterdam, for example, and they arrive the same time that they're that the that the berth opens up where they can unload the ship. And they've got this scheduled down to a fine point because the ships are so reliable. Basically, these huge container ships normally are not affected by weather. They're not affected by much of anything. They just go and do it. So if they show up, like right now, those berths are being emptied. They don't have, they have empty ports there where nobody's showing up. But when this is over with, they will be flooded and there will be ships waiting. So instead of it just adding seven days to the journey, is probably going to affect things for several weeks down the road. Maybe even months. And, and if you're a manufacturing facility in Europe and you're waiting on parts from China, you're shut down. And, and it raises the price because they're, they're actually airlifting in some of those parts right now from China. That raises the price of those parts, which means across the board, even if you weren't importing things from China, if you were just trying to build something in Europe right now, the price goes up. And since the price went up for the parts in Europe, guess what? The price goes up for those same parts and those same materials in the United States because we have a global economy. So, so this is this is like the most specific supply chain issue. This is going to have ripple effects that are going to be felt in Wisconsin, in Rio de Janeiro, in Berlin, and in Shanghai because one ship had a breeze hit its bow a little harder than it hit the stern and mm. and ran aground in the shallows that's what the the shipping company is saying happened is that the they had a malfunction in one of their jets and the wind was stronger on the bow than on the stern the stern usually has more wind cuz that's where the big uh tower is but they were they were at capacity so it went all the way to the front and their bow engine jets were less powerful than their stern engine jets. So they ran aground and then they drifted all the way out across. And now they're having to get it up off. They've got dredgers under there. They've, they're, they're trying to dredge underneath a super cargo ship. And this goes to another thing when we're talking we've talked about this a lot, logistics and transportation and infrastructure. The Suez Canal needs to be dredged down probably another 20 feet deeper, which is a massive expense that Egypt is not in a place to foot the bill for. But the world's traffic is going through there. So it's not just infrastructure in the United States. Most of the world is suffering from older infrastructure. The massive things that were built back then are having to be upgraded and built back some more. We're doing it in the ports in the United States. There's a massive set of dredging projects that have been going on for a decade. If we could now focus in on doing that with our roads and our dams and our bridges, then internal traffic would be at the same level as our external traffic. Um, Anyway, we're getting close to out of time for this hour. Do you want to have something to wrap up in the next minute before we tell them who we are again? Well, there's a revolution coming in the United States. It's actually started in manufacturing. Manufacturing in the United States has been shrinking for many, many years, uh, at least the number of employees and, uh, and been 
kind of anemic when you talk about a piece of our economy, and it is resurging, oddly enough, during this crisis. And it may be, we may be well on the way to seeing a renaissance in manufacturing in the United States. We can talk about that more next hour. All right. Well, in the meantime, we do give uh, investment advice to people of high net worth, and we manage portfolios for them. Um, if you would like to talk to us off the air, where we could actually give fiduciary advice rather than just pure education, we have uh, real live people that answer the phone during the week and voicemail during the weekend locally available at 254-947-1111. You can also reach that same line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN, presuming that you still have a landline. That'd be toll-free. Otherwise, just go to the local number. Uh, you can email us directly, jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. We actually read those. Uh, tpwc.com, that is the personal wealth coach. You can go to the, to the webpage, We've got podcast links up to your favorite networks out there. You can just search us for the podcast. We've got radio program recordings going back lots of years. You can go there and sign up for our newsletter. You can uh, send a contact form to us there. Again, the emails directly, that seems to be what people use the most. Jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. Thanks for listening.